This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Launchpad on Business Radio. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Launchpad here on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm Rob Conybeer, a founder and managing director at Shasta Ventures, a leading venture capital firm where we focus on investing in early stage companies. So I'm really thrilled about our guest today. We have Jack Abraham, who's joining me via Zoom. He's a serial entrepreneur and an investor. He is best known today for several of the startups that he's been behind, but it's been done through his fund, Atomic, which is actually a startup studio. We're going to hear about that. And also, when you look at the companies that he has created through Atomic, he has raised over $500 million for companies that are literally worth billions within years of starting Atomic. Jack, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Excited to be here and um, excited for the conversation. Yeah, so one of the things that I did getting ready for today, although we've known each other for years, I went back and looked at your LinkedIn page, and it's a pretty remarkable set of accomplishments, but I'm always interested in the pictures that people put up. And on your LinkedIn page, you have a picture of you sitting next to Obama. And for people that haven't seen this picture, it's the only time I think I've seen you in a suit or something formal. And you're sitting in front of a fireplace. It looks fairly formal, fairly federal. And um, you're talking, and it is definitely not a fundraising, grip and grin sort of picture. You, and, and, the, and the, the, the photo is titled Debating Obama. So could you share what is that photo about and what's the story behind that? Yeah, great question. Um, I was actually out at breakfast one week with a, a venture capitalist who's a friend of mine who told me that he was having lunch with the president later on that week. And he just casually said, Jack, do you want to have lunch with the president? And I said, yeah, that sounds good. He said, great, you'd have to go to DC, but I'll sit you next to the president. So I said, okay, great. I I think I can make that work. Um, So I went to Washington DC, I I sat next to Obama, and I thought really long and hard about how to use that time. You know, the very selfish way to use that time would be to try to get something that you want out of the government or out of the president. And I really tried to think about how could I use this time for someone less privileged who wouldn't have a voice to the president and try to get through to him on something that really matters, maybe someone from a lower like socioeconomic status. And my perspective is actually that the most unfortunate and unfair thing about the United States is, um, you know, I like to believe there's, it's a land of equal opportunity, but the unfortunate thing is we're all sort of born into a zip code and the zip code determines the public school you get assigned to and the public school you're assigned to, you can't change. And that determines your education. And in an information age, um, you know, that determines your ability to participate or not in that age. I think it's just so unfortunate. And I think it's so unfortunate that the government isn't doing much to try to change that. And I think Obama, you know, kind of realizes that, but there wasn't much going on in his administration. So I thought long and hard about how can I frame this to President Obama in a way where he's gonna understand this, it's gonna get to him. My goal is actually to have it get to him. Right, to actually have an impact, have him actually think about it as opposed to just go, hmm, nice thing you just said. Yes, exactly, exactly. And try to get him to come up with policy decisions to try to change this and help people. So I went, I got sat next to the president and Um, I said, um, you know, I kind of wanted to draw him in a little bit. So I said, Mr. President, I think one of the hallmarks of our country that's been incredible is we have become a country where people and their opportunity is not discriminated on the basis of something they can't control that they were born with. And over the course of the history of our country, we have eliminated discrimination on the basis of race, religion, sexual orientation, And he's in the meantime, you know, nodding his head. Obviously, he agrees with all those things, very proud of those things in our nation's history. I said, but Mr. President, today in in 2012, I'm disappointed that we still have something that people are born with that they can't control, that they can't change, that determines the entire course of their life. And that is the zip code that they're born into. It determines the public school they're assigned to, the education they get, the economic opportunities they have in their life. 
And I said, Mr. President, I know you realize this because you went to private school. Despite the zip code your, your daughters are in, you're sending them to private school in Washington, DC. And I would bet everyone around this table was either in a good zip code or went to a good private school. And I put him on the spot and I challenged him in front of everyone at that lunch. I said, you know, what are you doing about this? What are you gonna change? How are you thinking about this? How are you gonna rectify this for all of these people that are caught in this unfortunate situation? What right. are you gonna do to help them? They don't have a voice, they can't participate. And you know, how are you gonna take this next evolution in the American dream and help create more equality for these people? And so Obama, and there's a series of photos of me and Obama. In the beginning, oh, yeah. he's leaning in, he's excited. He is saying, you know, oh, this is great, idealistic, what's coming next? And he didn't right. know I was gonna stick him with the education thing. And he very quickly is looking at me like, who's this kid? I was the youngest person in the room by far. I was 26 at that point. The second um, oldest person was probably twice my age. So um, it was definitely, it took some guts to take on the president. Um, and we had a healthy debate about it, but I'm glad I stood up for some people that wouldn't have had that audience. And um, I'm proud of that moment. Yeah, no, you should be. That's really remarkable. And I'm actually, I may embarrass you a little bit with my next statement. So just prepare yourself here. Yeah. Uh, there, there, there seems to be something in the water at the Wharton School and very specifically undergrad Wharton. And I'm going to compare you to Elon Musk, which I don't think you've ever heard me say to you before, but it's really interesting when you look at your career path, you came out of undergrad Wharton, came out to the Bay Area, and you started a company called Milo.com, sold it to eBay for $75 million, held on to enough of it to make money to be able to do the things that you want to do. And instead of going and starting um, you know, a company in an area you had, you went and you started a startup studio, Atomic. And, you know, there's kind of a long mixed history of success of, I say this with air quotes, startup studios, where you have people that have been successful, successful entrepreneurs that then think they can go start a whole series of companies, spin them out, have other people do them. And at the same time, there's really no arguing with the early success that you've had here, hymns that a lot of people have heard of and other startups that have come out of it already have raised, as I mentioned earlier, over half a billion dollars. Why don't you talk a bit about why did you decide to do that when there are 40 other things, hundreds of other things you could have gone and done? Yeah, great question. Um, there were a few things leading into that. And thank you. Yeah, we've, we've definitely had a lot of success. We're actually up to a billion dollars that we've raised across our portfolio at this point. Um, and two of our companies last year were in the top 10 fastest growing in Silicon Valley. And Hims was the second fastest company in the history of the United States to billion valuation. So not only are we building great companies, but we're building them faster than ever, which is great. And we're learning how to scale companies faster than ever. Um, you know, Atomic was actually an idea that I had way back when I was 12 or 13 which the general premise is, you know, there are a lot of problems in society. There are a lot of things that are broken. There's a lot of opportunity for solutions. And there are a lot of people in the world. There's a lot of talent. There's a lot of people that could work on those problems and unlock them. And companies tend to be this great vehicle for aligning interests of people, getting really good people to work on problems, develop solutions, and then scale them into the world with the help of really smart people around them investors and advisors and partners and all of those kinds of things and you know most of the progress of the world has almost been generated through this process of randomness where people collide in society and you hear it in the founding stories of companies you know mark zuckerberg roomed with dustin moskovitz and boom something collided and you have one of the most successful companies ever People meet at a barbecue, you know, people are out and they meet at some networking event. It really is some process of randomness that drives ideation and the formation of companies. And that is the force with which it, that's created a lot of the progress of the world over the last several decades. And the, the big thesis that I had is, you know, maybe the people that come up with the ideas are not necessarily the best people to execute them always. In other words, I've found some of the most inventive people 
like being inventive. They like having ideas. They love running a million miles an hour and being all over the place. They're extraordinarily creative versus sometimes the very best people at building things are extremely organized. They're very structured. They have processes. They like managing people. They make the trains run on time. And, um, you know, I thought, man, if there could only be some sort of entity that existed that found all these problems in society, identified all these opportunities to solve those problems, validated that they were real issues and that there were real solutions that were oriented to fix those problems, um, you know, and then found the best team in the world to solve those problems, which, especially in the modern age, we're in an age where technology is transforming all industries and all parts of our society. And the reality is for many of our industries, the people that run them are not interacting with engineers on a daily basis. They don't understand technology fundamentally. They're you know, from a different generation in many cases. They don't understand what's possible with things like AI. So sometimes you need to put these people in society together and create these super teams that wouldn't normally connect in society. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'd like, I'd like to dig into that a little bit but if you're just tuning in, I'm Rob Conivier, and you're listening to Launchpad on Sirius XM 132 Business Radio. And I am on Zoom right now with Jack Abraham, who is the founder of Atomic. So maybe just talk about a little more specifics here about how you bring in these teams and people into what you're doing. Because one of the great challenges over time has been, how do you find somebody that's really passionate enough to put in the long hours that are required from an execution point of view to take an idea and then go the distance with it and maybe talk about hymns or talk about something else where you describe what's the, what was the idea, what's the product, and then how did you actually find that person or that team and, and build it? What was your secret sauce there? Yeah, great question. Um, so as you had mentioned sort of earlier, I, I sold my first company to eBay when I was 24 years old. I worked there for a couple of years and um, I got in the habit of writing down ideas for my next company while I was there. And by the time I was ready to leave eBay, I had 250 ideas for my next company written down in the list. And, Holy cow. Yeah, which was quite a bit. And I, I just thought, I put two and two together, you know, I can build teams. I've been building many teams for eBay, building hit products for the company. Um, I could build teams to validate these ideas, find the best 10, and then build the product, fund it to start the company, and then scale it up. Um, and there should be methodologies to test the market risks behind these ideas and really find the needle in the haystack. How do you, how do you take these 250 ideas and how do you really systematize testing them and find the, the best 10 was the original mission. And the reality is um, there's just a dramatic power law to um, the value of ideas. And, you know, sometimes in Silicon Valley, people like to say ideas are a dime a dozen and execution is everything. And that is true. You know, if you have a great idea and it doesn't get executed, it's worthless. However, executing on a bad idea is insane. Um, you're, you're wasting your life. You could waste five, right. ten years of your life. You could waste capital. You could waste dozens. What was your insight? What was your insight to I want to have a methodology to take these 250 ideas, which by the way, I'm curious how you organized them, but that's another question. Um, and then sort through them and say, this makes for the 10 best that we're really going to test and, and move forward with. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, the list has grown. It's over 600 ideas now for companies. Um, I keep them in an Evernote file primarily, but have other systems for organizing them. Um, and you know, I think that there are a number of things that make ideas great ideas um, that you kind of have to study and, and really think about. Some of the core principles of what make great ideas great ideas are, as the idea scales, what gets better for the customer? That's probably the most important question for a business. And there's all these business terms to describe that. Like, for example, network effects. Um, right, right, right. The bigger it is, the happier you are to be a part of it. Like LinkedIn, for example. I mean, exactly. it's a perfect example. It gets better and better the more people use it. Correct. That is probably the most important question to answer in business, and we think a lot about that question. So that's one question. Second question is, why now? You know, if this is such a great idea, why hasn't it been done before, essentially? And, like, what are the enabling things that make this possible now? 
people had tried YouTube many, many, many times before YouTube came out. And there were some enabling technologies that made it possible. One, there was ubiquitous broadband that had occurred. Two, there was flash video where it could play instantly and people didn't have to download it. And then three, there was MySpace where you could embed flash videos. There was a distribution format. So sometimes the stars align and there's a why now for ideas and you really need to pick apart that why now. And then the third thing, and this is probably the most important, is that the most important lesson I've found from now having started a couple dozen companies um, and invested in dozens as well, is actually that distribution matters more than ideas. Um, in other words, if you have a great idea in a vacuum and you and I, Rob, could speak about this idea, we could be convinced it's a great idea. And it's not a matter if we're right or wrong. We actually could be right, it's a great idea. It sort of doesn't matter unless it can reach massive scale, unless it can reach tons of customer, you know, consumers or businesses, it's kind of not worth your time. Um, so we've developed all of these methodologies to test whether or not ideas can reach scale, whether they can have distribution, through what channels. And as we operate more and more businesses across more and more channels, we understand them well. We know how to drive. So yeah, so if you're just tuning in, I'm Rob Connie here, and you're listening to Launchpad on Sirius XM 132 Business Radio. And I am on Zoom right now with Jack Abraham, the founder of modern startup studio, Atomic. So when you take a look at this ecosystem that you're starting to build and the number of successes you have coming out, you, you noted over a billion raised for the companies that have come out of your studio, and that's only over the last five or six years that, that you've had this going. Uh, has it become easier to recruit people now? Are you finding that you have a lot of inbound from your network executives and people that are interested in either starting something and helping explore these ideas or joining an established company? And maybe for those, are those the two buckets that you look at? for people? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, we also think about Atomic like we think about our businesses and the best businesses have flywheel effects. They have something where as the business scales, they get better and they get easier to operate and they become more defensible. The three things that make Atomic work are ideas, capital, and then talent. Those are really the three things. Um, and you know, in the idea bucket, essentially what happens is as we operate more companies, our pattern recognition improves, um, particularly in the age of technology disrupting industries, the more companies that operate in, in more industries, um, you know, the more we understand industries. We know the white spaces in those industries. We know how they operate. We know how to get distribution in them. And it leads to not only more ideas, but higher quality ideas. Um, on the capital side, as our companies do better and better and they scale faster and faster, it becomes easier to raise capital and we're able to raise a lot of rounds for our companies very quickly, many times within days from top firms um, and at you know, pretty good terms, which has been very, very advantageous for us. We actually have a 100% follow-on rate across our portfolio. We've always been able to raise capital anytime. That's want. unheard of. Yeah, for people that aren't familiar with it, that's unheard of. Yeah, and then the third that you mentioned is that talent thing, and they're fed by the, the, the other two. They all feed each other. But you know, as there's more success and more scale and the ecosystem gets bigger, it's definitely really attractive to people. The brand builds, the reputation builds. We've continued to build out our partnership at Atomic. We have more GPs now. We have a team of 35 people who are experts at company building to work with. So the value prop gets better and better. Our fund sizes have increased over time. Um, and you know, as a result, it's more and more attractive to top talent. So where do you keep these ideas? I think you said it's, it's gone up to, what was it, 500 ideas, 600 ideas now? Do you have a big safe? Do you write them down? Do you keep an air gap somehow, the same way that people talk about air gapping Bitcoin? Where do you put them all? Yeah, good question. Um, I actually have them in an Evernote file, primarily. Oh, that's right. You mentioned the Evernote, but, yeah. but let me put it differently. How big is that file? It's pretty big. I've ha actually had to break it up into multiple files because it takes so long. <laughs> um, it's not just the ideas. There's many sub-bullets to the ideas of the key points that will make them work um, or things that need to be tested or things so that... When people come in 
and you have people coming in to help evaluate the, these ideas, who gets to look at it? Who gets to go through it? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, or is that pretty tightly held? Is it kind of like the secret recipes for the McDonald's Big Mac and Coca-Cola and Kentucky Fried Chicken? Is that part of what you have locked away? Yeah, it's pretty tightly held. Um, people have been able to look at portions of it at certain periods. <laughs> it's kind of like the government. You don't want anyone to have like all the pieces. So yeah. you, know, you have different people having parts of the pieces. Um, but you know, we're pretty good at picking the right things off, off the list at the right time, given how the world's changing and what why nows are occurring and therefore what opportunities are right to pursue at that point in time. Yeah, so we have probably about five or six minutes before we have to take a break, but maybe just talk about HIMSS. And this is a brand that a lot of people have heard of and just talk about what is it, where the idea came from and you know how the company has grown. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so HIMSS was a company that we created out of Atomic. Um, we were looking into specifically telemedicine and as the future of the healthcare industry potentially. And I was actually an angel investor in Doctor on Demand, which is kind of one of the up and coming telemedicine companies that's likely to go public um, pretty soon. Teladoc was kind of the first version of that. Doctor on Demand's more app-based and less phone-based. Um, and you know, the sort of core insight was this telemedicine 1.0 phenomenon, the value prop was really about replacing the primary care doctor and offering a virtual visit. So from a consumer yeah. perspective, you don't have to get in your car, you don't go to the waiting room, it's a virtual visit, they can treat you for anything. And you and were talking about the why now, a big part of the why now is everybody has these phones that have front facing cameras on them, so you can do the telemedicine piece anywhere. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. So that's a big part of the why now. But I think the other insight that we had was, um, you know, the thing you, you learn, the more businesses you operate, is that consumers are activated by big pain points. The more painful, the more likely they are to respond. And we thought, okay, what if you flip this on its head? And instead of the value prop primarily being about not going to the waiting room or getting in your car, we make the value prop around treating conditions people are suffering from, that's what we're activating consumers around. And we use telemedicine as a vehicle to complete the diagnosis. And then we you know, fulfill the subscription for them and we help get them treated for that condition, underlying condition that, that, that we, they have. So we basically you know, invented this telemedicine 2.0 concept before anyone else was doing it. Um, and you know, we tested a lot of different conditions that we thought could be ripe for that, um, you know, many different ones. And, um, you know, in the way that we test distribution, as I mentioned before, we actually found that hair loss was this condition that just tested off the charts. I mean, to the point where we had people going in, going through a flow, and they were so desperate for the solution, even though it wasn't available yet, they were signing up for it. And we generated a million dollars of sales in the test. So we didn't have a product yet, but we got a million dollars of sales in a test for this product. And that was- Yeah, which means that you're probably gonna find some distribution if you could get a million dollars of sales in a test. So it seems to hit the, the why now and the distribution question. And I think maybe what's a question on, like how do you get network effects around this? Cause you know, to use the third piece you were talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there are a lot of effects around once you build the doctor-patient relationship, you know, instead of having it be, again, that doctor on demand, I'm your primary care physician online, and that's kind of the relationship, you build that relationship with the patient through a condition first, and then you start treating them for more and more conditions over time. And specifically for HIMSS, the median age is 26. So um, a lot of people who are millennials that are up and coming, nine out of 10 of them don't even know who their doctor is. So look at this audience. I mean, this is a group of people that grew up uh, used to pressing a button on their phone and a car shows up via Uber, you press a button on your phone, food shows up, they've never been to a doctor's office, they don't know who their doctor is, they know the future, they expect the healthcare system to be on their phone. And that's what HIMSS delivers. And this is their first interaction with healthcare is really through HIMSS and HERS. Um, and that enables creating a doctor-patient relationship and treating them over the course of their life 
I'm creating a larger and larger doctor network. Oh, so you start to be able to use the doctors to do other things to actually continue to grow it. Because it's not just about hair loss, but it's about all those other things that start to happen where you're looking for professional help. Exactly. Some of the best companies I've learned from some of my mentors have, they start at, with a very narrow problem that is a really, really big pain point and they expand from there. And that was the strategy with HIMSS. We now treat over 25 conditions. So where did it grow? So you, you did the test. You must have said, holy cow, a million dollars in sales here just from the test. What happened then? So then we knew we had to build the company. Uh, at this point, this was a prototyping engineer and someone part-time kind of working on it. And um, the story was I had actually gotten, um, I had been talking to a friend of mine, Josh Kushner, who runs a firm called Thrive Capital about this idea. And um, I had sort of mentioned to him that, you know, we're working on this. I think this is going to be a big company. I'd love to keep keep in touch with you about this idea and kind of see how it goes. And then one day I was at, at lunch, at an investor lunch, and Josh sends me an email, very short email. And it says, Jack, my team is on the one yard line of funding a competitor to that hair loss company. Do you oh have- Oh boy, yeah. So I hopped on the phone with Josh and I said, Josh, like, you can't fund this company, like, let me talk to you. <laughs> this is going really well. We just did this test. We generated a million dollars of sales in the test. We have a great team starting to work on it. Like, please, please hold off on investing in them. Let me have the team fly out and meet, meet you. And let's wow. talk about this. In the meantime, at that point, we didn't have a team working on the company. There was no <laughs> working on the company. So we had people who were running the test fly out to meet Josh and, um, you know, they hit it off and um, my co-founder and now the person's CEO, Andrew, who's ex Andrew Dudem, who's extremely talented, um, you know, through the course of that interaction, Josh almost convinced him, you know, really to become the CEO and Andrew uh, really wanted to do that. So that's, wow. how, that's how that ended up happening. How did you negotiate valuation once you had that enthusiasm from the, from the investor that was at the one yard line with another opportunity? Yeah, it was very tricky to value at that point. Um, you know, I think it was a, Josh had a starting point based on the other company that they were thinking about investing in and we started working off of there. Okay, so usually that's an interesting point. There are usually some sort of benchmarks that people go to to start with valuation. It's not just entirely out of thin air. So we're going to have to break in a minute or two here, but maybe just uh, go through what happened from there to present day with Hims. Yeah, so from there to present day, um, you know, Hims has had a torrid growth rate. Um, you know, I mentioned the company is the second fastest company to a billion valuation in U.S. history. Um, you know, it's going to reach the, the scale of revenue that Teladoc reached in, you know, about a decade of its operating history in a, a few years. So, wow, massive scale. Um, we've extended the brand from just hymns to hymns and hers. So now we offer conditions related to women as well. The brand's available in Target um, and we sell across all the targets in the United States, which is really exciting. And we even treat things like COVID. We were actually the first company in the United States to offer an FDA approved um, at-home COVID test via saliva. So you can go on the site, you can order a test, it'll get shipped to your house. You don't have to go to, to a doctor or a hospital and wait in a waiting room where people might have COVID. You can do it from the comfort of your home and we'll send you the results within a few days. We were the first company in the country to do that. Um, so we're continuing to innovate and you know wanna um, over time, just continue to be more and more relevant to people's lives and um, help them with an increasing amount of their, their health decisions. Well, that's a great segue and, and really an amazing story with what you're building and will continue to build. So we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Jack Abraham, who's the founding and managing partner of Startup Studio and Investment Fund Atomic. When we come back, we're going to focus more on COVID and what the implication has been for the startup ecosystem overall in the economy. I'm Rob Conybeer, and this is Launchpad, Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. 
a business radio brief. I've got an idea to commercialize goat meat as a viable alternative for protein. It seems like you could get some early experience with some customers. The biggest markets are in St. Angelo, Texas, and New Holland, Pennsylvania. The vast majority of companies are financed with some seed capital from the founders or from small loans. Maybe that's this kind of business until you could prove an infusion of capital would let you scale it to be something much bigger. Business radio powered by the Wharton School. American Top 40. We're heading for a brand new number one song. Casey Kasem counts the hits that shined in the 70s. It's time for this hour's long distance dedication. Our letter is postmarked Billings, Montana. Hear the actual 40 song countdown that aired during this week of the Super 70s. Keep your feet in the ground and keep reaching for the stars. American Top 40. Saturdays at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific, with replays throughout the weekend on 70s on 7. Seven. You're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio. Welcome back to Launchpad on SiriusXM's Business Radio. I'm Rob Conybeer, a founder and managing director at Shasta Ventures, a leading venture capital firm where we focus on investing in early stage companies. I'm thrilled to continue the conversation we've been having with Jack Abraham, who's the founding and managing partner of Startup Studio and Investment Fund Atomic. Jack, again, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. So I have one word for you. COVID. Let's talk about COVID. Yes. Great. Yeah. So what do you, what, what do you think about you? Before we took the break, you were talking about Hims was the first company to make widely available COVID testing uh, kits. How do you think about COVID, not just for Hims and the opportunity there, but the impact on the startup ecosystem in general and Atomic as well? Yeah, great question. You know, I think um, maybe I'll start zoomed out, like from a, a macro perspective and then zoom into venture and startup land and how I think this is going to impact everything. You know, I, I think maybe um, in, in somewhat of a contrarian manner, if we were to project 10 or 20 years into the future and historians were going to write history about this time period looking backward, I think they might end up describing this period as the great leap forward. Um, and the reason why I think that is I actually think what's occurring right now is very interesting where a lot of trends and things that were going to happen inevitably that were shifts that were already occurring got dramatically accelerated. Um, so something that might've taken, you know, five, 10 or 20 years might happen in three months or a year because of COVID. Um, so, you know, some examples of that, some, some things to think about in the retail industry, you know, it's pretty obvious that e-commerce was gonna become a larger part of the economy and that some big retail was going to die. And that was a slow death that was kind of occurring. Um, and we saw e-commerce within two months of COVID happening go from 15% of the U.S. economy to 30% of the U.S. economy. Um, you know, as a part of that, Amazon pre-COVID was 44% of e-commerce. I don't know what share of the economy they have, but if this continues going through the end of the year, who knows where e-commerce ends up at? Is it 40%? Yeah, and it's not even just Amazon, but it's also Target and Walmart. Anybody that has a strong presence in e-commerce, as long as they've been able to fulfill has been doing really well. Absolutely. Shopify has been doing well. I mean, it's booming, right? So it, it would have gotten there. This was growing at like a 12% annualized rate, but it grew at 100% in two months. So imagine where it's going to be at the end of the year. Dramatic acceleration. In the meantime, you see some of these big retailers that were probably going to go bankrupt, starting to go bankrupt. JCPenney is kind of right on the edge right now. You know, Macy's has months of cash left. Um, you know, obviously a very big brand, uh, Neiman Marcus filed for bankruptcy. Um, so, you know, accelerate, these things were going to happen. It was just a question of time scale and dramatic acceleration. Um, in the healthcare industry, you know, as you know, I'm a big fan of telemedicine and um, telemedicine was widely resisted by the healthcare industry for a few reasons. One, doctors want people to come in. Um, they get appointment revenue that way. Insurance companies want there to be more friction, generally speaking, so they don't have to pay quite as much. So there's, there's generally resistance to telemedicine from a regulatory perspective, despite the fact that it, it just works so much better and it's so much more convenient for people and it helps. Yeah, you know, but, but then also with telemedicine, you've had over the last couple of months, 
You've had regulations change in terms of doctors being able to practice medicine out of state over the internet. And then Doctor on Demand, as you mentioned, where we're an investor as well, they actually got approval to be able to offer their services using Medicare Part B, which reaches 32 million Americans for just a $10 copay. Yeah. That was going to take years to happen, and it just happened over the course of a month or two because of the pandemic. That's exactly what I was going to say. I mean, a general principle is, you know, this pandemic is forcing entrenched interests and industries to capitulate to a digital reality where things need to be done digitally. And it is better in a lot of ways. And as a result, all these regulatory barriers disappeared overnight. So some people have said, well, it would have taken a decade of reform for regulatory you know, change for telemedicine happened overnight and is likely going to be permanent. I think that's going to change the healthcare system pretty dramatically. Um, you know, I think another one to watch that's really interesting is, is education, obviously. Um, you know, education used to be constrained to brick and mortar, you know, you had to be in a physical classroom in order to access information from a teacher. And once that goes digital, those walls are gone. I mean, that can go anywhere. You see universities like Cambridge University, one of the best in the world, has decided to go entirely digital next year. Many universities don't know if fall classes are gonna matriculate. And once you let down that barrier of those four walls defining a classroom, someone, in, especially with universities being stretched for cash, some universities, maybe not the top 10 universities, maybe not the Ivy League schools, but some universities gonna be like, to generate extra revenue, we're gonna make our classes available to anyone for cheaper. And we're gonna make them, the, oh, they'll just say anybody can come. Interesting, anybody. not even entrance requirements. And then if you do that, you can be there, but you still have to get good grades to get it to graduate or whatever sort of virtual testing you might do to make sure that that student actually did the work. Wow. There, there still might be entrance exams and things like that, but basically dramatically increasing access to education and finally bringing down price. A travesty of the country has been, um, you know, education increases at about 5% per year and inflation is 2% per year. So every 20 years, the real cost doubles and wages have been stagnant. So it really creates this huge um, debt load on, on the future generations. So I, I think that's an area that's finally ripe for innovation. Obviously video as the next platform is huge. We saw Zoom go from 10 million daily active users to 300 million in a two month period. And crushing revenue as well. Just, just doing amazing revenue as well. The business model scaling will support it. So, um, on top of those things, I'm really interested in what you think is going to happen to the venture capital industry as a part of this. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's really interesting. So, you know, leading up until this time, generally there was a game, I would say, that was being played in the venture industry where, um, you know, things were going well, investments were going up, SoftBank raised a massive fund, all of these deals kept getting marked up. So on paper, everything looked really good, which enabled everyone to raise funds. And management fees are very attractive on funds. You're guaranteed to get a certain percentage of a fund for 10 years. So if you deploy funds quickly and you stack funds, you can get this great management fee income over time. And as that's true, as long as it's easy to raise funds. So when everyone in an ecosystem is doing that, capital gets deployed quickly, valuations go up, it's easy for startups to access capital. And I think you know, what's happened in this environment is that's changed where the LP spigot of capital is starting to close off for a couple of reasons. One is uncertainty around the economy. Two is venture has crept up as a percentage of LP's portfolios over time relative to the rest of their portfolios. And three is the major real LP in venture capital over time has been university endowments. And as I mentioned previously, university endowments are under unprecedented pressure in their entire history for a few reasons. One is university's revenue really comes from three sources, it comes from hospital systems, and hospital systems make money from elective procedures, and people are not going in for elective procedures. So there's, those are in the red. The other way universities make money is through sports, um, and sports aren't happening right now. And yeah. then, right, their core business is classes matriculating, and they're not sure if fall classes will matriculate. So universities are going to these endowments, and they're saying, 
we don't know how much capital we're going to need from you, but it might be a lot. It's certainly going to be a lot more than we need before, which is causing CIOs of these endowments to kind of be skittish on. They don't know even how much capital they have. to Right. On long-term investments, they're not going to be making a lot of long-term investments. So that's changing the spigot for, uh, for venture. Right. So if, then, if people who run venture firms realize it's going to be harder to raise a fund, you know, nobody wants to be in a situation where they go to raise a fund and they're not successful. So they'll drag the fund out longer, which means that there's like fewer dollars per year that go to work per fund, which means competition for deals go down, which means pricing goes down, which means it's harder to raise capital. Um, so it has all- So it trickles all the way down to the startups themselves. Correct. Um, and that's kind of what's happening at this point. So if you're just tuning in, I'm Rob Cunnybeer, and you're listening to Launchpad on Sirius XM 132 Business Radio. And I'm on Zoom right now with Jack Abraham, the founder and part management partner of Atomic Labs. So we're talking about COVID and its implication for startups and the economy in general. And one of the things that you've talked about in the past is the idea of two parallel economies that are emerging as part of COVID. Could you explain that? Yeah, I think, um, you know, this is kind of a fascinating time. And I mentioned there's this great acceleration that's happening in part of the economy. So, you know, part of the economy is on fire. It's roaring. You see it in the stock market. It's ripping. You know, some companies are up 2x, 3x this year. And then you see some segments of the economy that are down 60, 70, 80%. The market's roughly even on the year, but there's very clearly haves and have-nots. There's winners and losers in this market. And I would roughly divide that as the old economy and the new economy. And essentially what's happened is capital allocators in the economy, um, you know, historically have tended to do two things. One, they've been a little bit older and they haven't understood technology quite as well as the next generation. So they've been reluctant to allocate capital to technology. An example of this is Warren Buffett, who's probably the best investor ever in history, didn't invest in a single technology company until he invested in Apple a year and a half ago, um, which is pretty incredible. So, you know, they're used to kind of old businesses, physical world businesses. Um, so that's kind of one element. The second element, is a lot of those capital allocators are looking for safety. And if you look at the safety spectrum, there's bonds on one end, there's kind of dividend stocks, and then there's kind of speculative technology, high growth stocks. And a lot of capital in the stock market was going into um, high dividend companies, which were physical world businesses that had stable cash flows, EBITDA, and dividends. So it's essentially a bond plus a little bit of equity upside, but very slow growing companies. And what's happened in COVID is these ultra safe seeming investments that were thought to be a bond plus a little bit of equity upside, all of a sudden became the riskiest investments in the economy because right. it wasn't even getting it. It's, are we going to get a dividend? Is this company going to survive? They became the most speculative. They became some of the most volatile things to invest in. So people who were invested in that pulled capital out created all of this capital essentially on the sidelines. Um, so there's so much capital on the sidelines that exists now that is sort of waiting to, to be deployed. Um, in the interim period, you know, the Federal Reserve has lowered interest rates. They've given us guidance through 2022. They're going to be zero. That makes bonds not attractive to, to be invested in. So you don't have bonds. You don't have these safe dividend stocks. And quantitative easing is going on. So that means the stock market's going to go up. So if you're a capital allocator, what do you have to go into? You have to go into stocks and what's working. I mean, it's really just technology. I mean, technology is really the only thing that's working and maybe a little bit of biotech and healthcare. Um, so you're seeing this massive inflow of capital into technology and it, it's coming and there's still a lot of capital on the sidelines. It might keep coming for some time and it's creating, um, you know, if, if 25 cents of every dollar was going into the new economy in the start of the year, perhaps 50 cents of every dollar inflowing into the stock market is now going- It, it is pretty remarkable because I think this is a huge, people have been asking this question, what's going on with the stock market? Why is this happening, et cetera? And it's because it's probably the most viable alternative of the different assets that are out there. And if the government's just printing money like crazy, 
being in cash is probably not the safest thing to be doing, unlike prior setbacks. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. And I think, you know, people see the growth rates picking up of technology companies. They're doing well in this environment. They actually have tailwinds associated with them. Um, you know, Zoom has been up, you know, two and a half, three X, public telemedicine company, Teladoc's up two and a half X. Companies that are going public are doing extraordinarily well. Um, and, you know, there are even, there's an emergence of something really interesting that I think is gonna really change the public markets going forward. Um, called SPACs, which I'm happy to talk about as well, which is changing the landscape. In yeah, and what does SPAC stand for? SPAC Special Purpose Acquisition Corporation. Essentially what it is, is it's a publicly listed entity, but it's a shell company that is essentially a blank check entity. So the way these things work is someone with credibility, usually an investor, will go and raise a SPAC from other investors. And the deal with the SPAC to those investors is, commit your capital to this thing. And the deal is, I have two years to find a company to invest in. If I don't find a company in two years, you get, you, you, the commitment of the capital is released. You don't have any more commitment. And if I do in that two-year period, you get a chance to, opt to invest in this deal. And more often than not, people do. And they go and they scour the universe for private companies that they think should be public or could be public candidates. And they'll go and invest in them like you would in a private financing round. So it's a private negotiation between buyer and seller, you have price discovery at the beginning of the process, unlike at the end of the process in an IPO where bank bankers typically dangle a very high price and then you get a low price the day before, you can't get out of it. Um, so you know what you're kind of getting yourself into. And these have a material amount of capital in them. I mean, these are anywhere from 100 million at the very low end. They're typically like 200 million to a billion dollars in them. So there is a, an ability to raise an extraordinary amount of capital. The process is fast. There's not a quiet period um, because it's actually technically a merger is the mechanism for bringing the company public. And the companies that have gone through this process have done extraordinarily well this year. Um, DraftKings what just- are, Yeah. DraftKings just did one, and I, I believe that is up, you know, over three x since it it's happened. Um, you know, clearly again, you know, I think there's a lot of investor interest for high growth technology companies. There was a company, um, and you know, this I think has a little bit of exuberance associated with it, but um, nonetheless, it could be an interesting investment. Um, there is a company called Nikola, which yes, was the first name of Tesla, Nikola Tesla that makes hydrogen powered cars. They don't have a commercially available product yet, but they do have a big back order of, you know, orders once this product is sold. It went out at a $3 billion valuation and it shot up to, I believe, a $27 billion market cap. In a Holy cow. Wow. So wow. These, these SPACs are, are very, very interesting vehicles. Um, notably because it's a merger, unlike an IPO, in an IPO, you can't release a lot of forward-looking information. In a SPAC, it's a merger. So you, you, know, there's all, you don't have all these kinds of requirements. And for high-growth companies, realistically, most of the value is in the future. It's not really, this is not like an oil company. This is not something you just value off past cash flows. So being able to project your vision and what that means from an investor perspective is something founders like. And it actually may have, interestingly, a positive selection bias of the investor base, where the people investing in the company are actually investing for the long term, versus in an IPO process, people who are investing in an IPO might be investing for the pop. So it might have adverse selection, where you know, people investing in an IPO are actually just will invest no matter what, because it's going to go up 50%, they can sell it within hours well, the next day. Well, I'm not going to ask you to answer my next question. So I'm just going to make it an observation, which is earlier on, you talked about all the ideas that you have on Evernote and other places up to 600 some ideas and all the methodologies you have. So it sounds like combing through opportunities for a place to invest a SPAC actually might be uniquely suited to your skill set. Again, not going to ask you to comment on it, but I suspect that would be a really good fit. So. We've got a few minutes here before we have to wrap up, but 
coming full circle on COVID and your entrepreneurial path in the past, what advice do you have for people that are thinking about starting companies today? Is this a good time, a bad time, a mixed time to get something started? Yeah, it's a great question. The final thing I'll say that's just related to SPACs and the stock market is I predict there's going to be a massive divergence between public valuations and private valuations because of the venture fund and LP dynamic and this public capital dynamic of, you know, lots of capital on the sidelines driving valuations up. And I actually predict it's going to cause a lot of companies to go public. So I think there's going to be potentially a big boom in that um, coming up. It's amazing. Yeah. It's remarkable despite it, the pandemic. Yeah. Um, from the, the startup perspective, I think there are some pretty massive pros to starting companies, but there are also some pretty massive cons right now. Um, the pros are there's tons of talent availability. So the big kind of polls for the best talent in Silicon Valley anyway, historically have been big companies that throw massive packages at the best people that you just can't compete with at a start, at a, as a startup and the big companies win the talent. And those companies have stopped hiring. On the other poll, you have people that wanna start their own company, and there's hundreds of seed funds, and anyone can raise money. So even if they don't have a great idea, they're just gonna to try to start a company. And you know, both of those polls have decreased dramatically since COVID has started. So you have more of an ability to create super teams around ideas than was previously available, I'd say, over the last five years. So that's kind of the good news. A second piece of good news is the opportunity set has increased because of COVID. There's a lot more opportunity. There's a lot more problems, but there's also, as a result, a lot more opportunity. So anything pre-COVID that was an opportunity still is. And post-COVID, there's even more. There's more potential innovation. The third thing is um, advertising costs have come down. So, you know, some companies are pulling back spending on advertising platforms. And in the meantime, because everyone's home, digital usage of digital platforms is going through the roof. So CPMs and CACs are coming down. So if your company relies on customer acquisition and ads to get their customers, you actually have a, an advantage right now in acquiring customers, which is really interesting. Now, there's a- We've got about 30 seconds before we'll have to wrap up. Okay. The massive downside is that it's, it's gonna be tremendously difficult to raise capital right now. Venture capitalists generally are not writing checks, certainly not to first-time founders for the most part, and they're not comfortable writing checks over Zoom, and they're not willing to meet in person, which is a challenge. Well, Jack, this has been uh, fantastic. Uh, I really appreciate your, your spending the time. And for people who would like to keep up with you and with Atomic, uh, where can they go to follow you, and where can they go to learn more about Atomic? Great. Um, you can follow me on Twitter, just at Jack Abraham. Um, Atomic on Twitter is at JoinAtomic. You can also go to our website, which is atomic.vc. Great. Well, Jack, thanks again. Really appreciate it. Of course. Thanks so much. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.